This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. Postal Service, under pressure from Congress and the Biden administration, is doubling its initial order for electric vehicles as part of its next-generation delivery vehicle fleet. But both House and Senate Democrats say USPS is setting the bar too low on electrifying its delivery fleet. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. So sounds like they get the money if they go electric and they don't if they don't. What's going on here, Jory? Lawmakers right now are really concerned about the Postal Service's fundamental estimates of the the math, really, that went in behind its complement of how many vehicles will be gas-powered and how many will be electric battery. Lawmakers are basically asking the Postal Service to go back, check their math, make sure that the underlying assumptions in this next-generation delivery vehicle acquisition plan are sound. And if they're not, go back and, and double check here. Right. So they're saying that the Postal Service is underestimating the cost of gasoline and also underestimating how far electric vehicles of a delivery type nature can go on a charge, right? Right. Well, I guess there's plenty of numbers, you know, what they say about statistics. And what about the chargers and the infrastructure? Did that come up at the hearing you were listening to? Because electric cars has to be recharged somewhere. It did come up. There was a hearing yesterday from the committee about this very issue. Experts from all across the spectrum. One concern here is that the Postal Service's assumption for what a charging infrastructure would cost here for these electric vehicles. They're estimating about $18,000 per charger. And what some of these experts testifying before the committee said is that's far more than what the General Services Administration, through its blanket purchase agreements, would be able to purchase those chargers for. Then what funding is available now? I mean, it sounds like Congress is offering more funding for the next generation fleet if it's mostly electric than it is offering if the next generation fleet was mostly gasoline. Yeah, so there's been a couple of efforts at this point to make sure that the Postal Service gets funding to feel comfortable to invest more heavily in electric vehicles. We saw that in the Build Back Better plan, which didn't go through. Committee Chairman Carolyn Maloney says that lawmakers are going to work on a smaller scaled back version of that bill, but we'll still have the USPS funding as part of that. But what we didn't really see here in the Biden administration's fiscal 2023 budget request was a full-throated request for USPS to buy more electric vehicles. It, across the board, asked for $757 million for 19 agencies to do just that, go out and buy zero emission vehicles. But the Postal Service was not one of them. It did give $300 million to the General Services Administration to support other agencies and buying electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. But there's a little carve-out language there where GSA can take its money that it will maybe get appropriated from Congress and put that towards infrastructure specifically for USPS. And what about the savings that the USPS is also supposed to be having because of the recently passed reform legislation, or that hasn't really kicked in yet? Well, it hasn't. It hasn't. The $107 billion that the Postal Service has saved through this legislation, it saved currently about $57 billion in payments to prefund retiree health benefits that it is no longer obligated to make anymore, that savings now, and it's going to save an additional $50 billion over the next 10 years. But the Postal Service has underfunded its capital investments across the board as a result of its longstanding financial challenges. So the fleet is just one of many things that it's putting its savings towards. USPS officials are saying they're not really flush with cash to suddenly buy many, many electric vehicles. The Postal Service has also been having the Inspector General looking at all this. What do they say? They looked into and they continue to look into 
some of, again, the underlying assumptions here with the USPS vehicle contract and the agency's underlying assumptions of what is more costly to buy up front versus maintain down the line, the life cycle cost of the vehicle. Some things that the inspector general found is that USPS assumed maintenance would be more expensive for electric vehicles than gas-powered vehicles. The IG didn't support that claim, said that the maintenance for the electric vehicles is going to be cheaper over the life cycle of the vehicle. The IG also found that the USPS would be able to significantly support an electrification of the fleet beyond its current targets. All right. And then I guess the third party to weigh in here is the USPS board. What do they say? Current board members really act like a board of trustees for the USPS and really significantly influence decisions like buying new vehicles. And there are, at this point, two new nominees working their way through Congress. Dan Tangerlini, a former administrator for GSA, and Derek Kahn, a former deputy director for the Office of Management and Budget. This question came up during their recent nomination hearing. And both of them said that they would look at this. And Khan said that the agency really has to look beyond just the initial cost of the vehicles. But like we've been saying, the cost of the charging infrastructure, and you really have to get that right across the entire USPS network in order for electric vehicles to be a viable idea. So if we buy um, 10,000 electric vehicles and we deploy them to, to Montana or to some rural parts of the country, there may not be the electrification of the grid to support these vehicles. And so I think a major pitfall is ensuring that all of the components needed for a procurement are, are in place. And I guess they should also hope the mail can actually get delivered. Did that come up in any of the hearings and discussions and oversight? Well, it did come up. We heard from some USPS officials. They said that regardless of what's powering the vehicles, whether it's internal combustion or whether it's battery, this doesn't have a material impact on the day-to-day mission of the agency, which is to, to deliver mail and packages to every address in the U.S. So in that regard, they don't see this having any immediate impact on its mission. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.